0: Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world. But nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst. And I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power.
1: Hello to all of you listening on Her Majesty's Internet. I'm sitting here with former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Hello, John. Hello. Good afternoon to you, Deborah. This is the first episode of our new podcast, Absolute Power, in which John is going to be my guide through all of the bits and pieces of our great British democracy. You might be putting the great inadverted commons commas, listeners, I don't know. Uh, John, welcome to the world of podcasting.
0: Thank you. I'm delighted to dip my toes in the water. And I hope you feel the same at the end.
1: Yes, well, we'll I'll let you know, but prob- you. probably off air. Indeed. Uh, now, on this first episode, we're going to be talking about a role, which you know very well indeed, John, because you were in it for 10 years. It's the Speaker of the House of Commons. John's the most famous Speaker of the House of Commons, I would say, in our in our time. That's fair, isn't it, John?
0: You well, sort of some if- people would insert the letters I-N in front of the famous, and some... <laughs> would not
1: i think i think I think you were much enjoyed by the British public oh,
0: thank you, you say all the right things, Deborah. I'm tempted to continue this conversation indefinitely
1: <laughs> you you sort of trademarked the word order in a way oh, dear. <laughs> exactly it's 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 uncanny uh and so lifelike uh some of your what what are seen on YouTube as your best put downs include um and I quote them here. That sticker on the subject of Brexit happens to be affixed to or in the windscreen of my wife's car. Yes, and I'm sure the honourable gentleman wouldn't suggest for one moment that a wife is somehow the property or chattel of her husband. That one particularly endeared me to you. Thank you. John, as a, I am a well-known feminist. Indeed. Uh, another of your more famous quotes, Mr. Angus Brendan McNeil. calm yourself. You may be a cheeky chappie, but you are also an exceptionally noisy one. Indeed. After the imposition of the migrant ban, I am, this is my favourite now. This is my favourite. And this is when you really won me over, John. After the imposition of the migrant ban, I am even more strongly opposed to an address by President Trump in Westminster Hall. Quite so. There was so much cheering when you said that.
0: Well, thank you. I felt very strongly about it. It wasn't something contrived long in advance as a statement. It was a series of words uttered by me in response, if memory serves me correctly, to a point of order Mm -hmm. from a Labour MP from Cardiff, Cardiff South and Panath, Stephen Doughty. And looking back, as I've very occasionally done, I'm reminded that I didn't have any notes or text in front of me. I simply sought to respond to his inquiry about how these visits were planned and what the arrangements would be, what the sort of guiding principles were as to whether such a visit should or shouldn't take place. And I tried to talk him through the procedure, but I did in the process make it clear that I myself was strongly opposed to a visit. And as you say, there was a notable reaction. I mean, there was hostile reaction as well because you can't please everybody. And all I can say is that it fell within my bailiwick to take a view on the matter, and having taken a view on the matter, I thought it was sensible to express it.
1: Can I just, shall I just reverse there? It fell within your? Bailiwick. What, what What is that word? It sounds quite Hogwarts. <laughs> Remit. Right, okay. Is that is, is that, a, is that a, common, a common word in Parliament?
0: It is probably not a common word, and it is no doubt mm-hmm. an early example in this exchange, Deborah. Mm-hmm. Of my eccentricity.
1: <laughs> well, listen, I'll be using bailiwick the whole time. And it, actually, listeners, if you could start to make bailiwick happen, we'd really <laughs> appreciate it. Could you get bailiwick you trending? Uh,
0: could we? Oh, we've only been gay about five minutes and I'm being roundly ridiculed and teased.
1: <gasps> no, I'm, I'm lo- I love Very I'm formative love stage. Words. I love words like bailiwick and I will be using it. And I am genuinely saying, <laughs> let's make bailiwick happen. People at home who've watched. Prime Minister's questions or other footage of Parliament will have seen you or your successor or your predecessor sitting at one end of the chamber and deciding who gets to speak. So if you're listening internationally, it looks like a sort of dining hall at a boys' private school. Very rowdy, lots of people shouting things and somebody needs to keep order. Somebody needs to be in charge of that and saying, look, this is just getting too rowdy and somebody needs to say who gets to speak now, who gets right of way. Somebody needs to conduct the traffic, if you will. Yes. That person was you. So can I ask... Just I'm not sure
0: I altogether appreciate the comparison with a traffic warden. <laughs> I'm not
1: saying warden. I mean, warden, I know politicians conductor. aren't very
0: popular, but it has to be said that traffic wardens aren't universally <laughs> popular more, either. Even less but popular. nevertheless, there is a resemblance.
1: I don't think a traffic warden... I think warden. I prefer
0: umpire or referee, <laughs> but I maybe don't get to pick. You are the arbiter.
1: I'm thinking of more of one of those old-fashioned traffic directors, you know, with white gloves. Not, traffic, oh, yes. not somebody who comes and gives you a ticket, but somebody who stands in the middle and conducts, like a, like an orchestra conductor. Oh, That's well, more flattering, oh, isn't it? Oh, very much
0: more flattering. Very oh, much warming more. to this.
1: <laughs> so can you give me the headlines of what is the role of the speaker and what responsibilities does that speaker have?
0: Initially, the speaker was so called because he, and it was always a he was expected to be the king's spokesman to parliament. That is to say, he had the responsibility to communicate, upon pain of death, to parliament the wishes, and in some cases perhaps even the demands, of the king. The story of the evolution of our history from a very powerful monarchy to a modern democracy means that today the Speaker is not the Queen's spokesman to Parliament, but rather Parliament's spokesman...
1: Person. Spokesperson to the Queen. Spokesperson
0: to the Queen, exactly. And so the responsibility of the Speaker is to communicate to Her Majesty what Parliament has decided, what acts, for example, it has passed, which await her royal assent, but which is understood in the modern context to be a constitutional necessity, but also a constitutional formality. What is the Speaker's job, in a nutshell, to keep order, encourage people to take part, and try to cut down on the number of people excluded altogether as a result of bad behaviour? Questions are the result of an electronic ballot, which is conducted independently of and without any involvement by the Speaker. And if they're drawn in the ballots, then they're on the order paper, that is to say, the agenda, the list of questioners Mm -hmm. for the day. But aside from those people, Deborah, drawn lucky in the ballot, there is scope for supplementary questions by other members of Parliament.
1: So just to be clear, who's asking these questions and who is answering these questions?
0: overwhelmingly, people asking the questions are members of parliament, but they are not, repeat not, repeat not, members of the government. And the people answering the questions are, repeat are, repeat are, members of the government. The reason I underline that is that it really speaks to the essence of parliamentary democracy, which is about the accountability of government, of what we often call the executive branch of our political system, to parliament, to the legislature.
1: And so you won't see members of government asking questions because they should be able to do that in the meetings they have.
0: Yes. Ministers have their own opportunity to raise matters of concern, for example, to their constituents with their ministerial colleagues either in private meetings or conversations or in correspondence. And actually, that's true of the Speaker as well. The Speaker doesn't ask questions in the Chamber of Ministers. And people often used to say, Mr Speaker, how do you, given that you're the Speaker, represent your constituents? How can you ask questions, given that you're not allowed to ask questions in the Chamber? I'd like to know
1: that too, because if I were in your constituency and you had to remain neutral the whole time, I'd be slightly annoyed.
0: Yes, I totally get that, Deborah. And you would be amongst a very large number of people in the Buckingham constituency, (laughs) by no means all personally hostile to me at all, who did feel that way. My answer was and remains that I represented my constituents in correspondence with ministers and in meetings with ministers. And I remember remarking to my private secretary that I was very struck by the speed with which these ministers were replying, and by their seniority mm-hmm. and he said to me "Oh, there's no surprise about that mr speaker it's a mark of very considerable disgrace if a minister so hacks off the speaker that the speaker demands to see the minister to remonstrate so i struck by this said oh i see so if i were annoyed with jack i'd go to see him at the ministry of justice would i to complain to which he instantly replied No, Mr Speaker, in those circumstances, you don't go to the Minister of Justice to see Mr Secretary Straw. Mr Secretary Straw comes to see you in Speaker's house for a meeting without coffee. (laughs) Now that never happened, Deborah. That never happened, to be fair.
1: I think I'd be quite a good speaker, John. How do I apply for this job? What's day one?
0: Deborah, your talents are manifold (laughs) and widely celebrated. I think there can be little doubt that this would be well within your capabilities. But I don't wish rudely to shock you, while nevertheless having to point out that there is a preliminary qualification, and mm-hmm. that is that you must secure election to the House of Commons. Now, going back to the subject you I'm, were raising that's, with me...
1: That's, that's, that's easy. I'm in Keir Starmer's constituency. He'll be gone by He'll be gone by. Oh, you're going to
0: ask Keir to step aside. Not because you wish to pursue a socialist vision which you think you'll do better than he, but because you now have... Yeah this aggressive personal <laughs> objective of becoming Speaker of the House mm-hmm. of Commons. That's and therefore, without in any thoughts. regard That's right. to his constitutional rights, uh, remove his shoes and put them on I mean, your own feet and clamber into the House of Commons, again, yep. not specifically for the pursuit of the public good or the representation of the people of Hobart and St Pancras, which ought properly to motivate you, Deborah, but... Because you have this rampant, insatiable, ruthless ambition to become the Speaker of the House of Commons. Well, now I think that we know the colour of your (laughs) money. I think we have your number. No, you would have to be a Member of Parliament.
1: Why would you even want the job? Like, what's good about it?
0: You may well have decided that you're not cut out to be a minister or that you're not likely to be asked to be a minister or that you don't think you'd be a very good minister and... All of those things were true in my case. I didn't think I was cut out to be a minister. I thought there was precious little chance of being asked by David Cameron to be a minister. And I didn't frankly want to be a minister or think that I'd be a very good minister. Now, you go beyond that and say, yeah, but why don't you just want to go on being an assiduous and conscientious constituency member of parliament well i enjoyed being a constituency member of parliament i was increasingly independent of not completely separate from but increasingly independent of my party very much on the liberal wing of the conservative party following considerable political movement by me leftwards over the years but i suppose there is a glint of ambition in the eyes of most politicians and i thought well Deborah, I can do something more than that. The one consistent strand in my career has been an absolute devotion to and passion for and belief in Parliament Mm -hmm. as a debating chamber, as a forum for representation, as the place where great causes can be championed. And indeed, the cause of parliamentary scrutiny of government is an important cause in its own right. And I thought, well, actually, I think I could do that job
1: At this point, who am I convincing that I need to be Speaker?
0: Very good question. The answer is you're convincing Members of Parliament. The election of the Speaker is now undertaken. It used to be done by divisions of the House for or against a particular candidate, which was quite a long-winded way of doing it. It is now done by secret ballot of all Members of the House. And so it is Members of Parliament whom you have to convince. That's quite relevant in one sense to underline Deborah, because I remember during the campaign, there was at least one newspaper that was vitriolically hostile to me and a scribbler in that paper who was making a point of writing about me as pejoratively and abusively as he could. One of my very good friends in Parliament said to me, John, don't read it because it's poisonous and nasty and rather stupid. But he said, Ultimately, he sensed there was a degree of frustration in the mind of this scribbler because he was sort of ranting to a Daily Mail audience. But was he likely to be effective, effective, Mm -hmm. effective in dissuading people from voting for me? Probably not. People who were hostile to me were hostile to me and weren't going to vote for me anyway. And people who were sympathetic to me and thought I'd be a good speaker and were inclined to vote for me, were frankly not going to be in any way influenced by a right-wing scribbler on the Daily Mail. What this journalist or that journalist or the other journalist or indeed what civil servants or even members of the public think of you isn't actually all that relevant. The electorate is 650 MPs, and what you've got to do is to persuade persuade more people to vote for you.
1: So do you... Go out to people who are sort of warm to you, you think, and take them for lunch and explain what kind of speaker you'd be. Like, how do you sell yourself in that situation? Because, you know, I'm in comedy, but we have an agent who does that. I mean, it's it's my job to say, oh, I'm not sure I'm terribly good. And then have my agent go, she's amazing. Um, how as a politician, you can't do that. You have to say, I'm I'm the right person for the job.
0: Yes, you can't have somebody else doing it all for you you can have a team of people helping and I did actually have a regional structure I know that sounds rather official and maybe even slightly pretentious I think it was just a feature of good organization I'm not a natural organizer but I had a campaign manager called Martin Salter who was Labour Member of Parliament for Reading West and he had offered to manage my campaign and martin is an absolutely brilliant political organizer and he established a sort of regional structure so that i had representatives in all the regions feeding into him the result of the calls they'd made so did i phone every mp no i phoned a lot and we would agree who i would call but sometimes people would be teed up in advance by one of my campaign team and then i'd get the feedback that person's definitely voting for you, you know, if you see him or her say thank you and But don't waste time time taking him to lunch. <laughs> I didn't actually do much by way of lunching or dining. Now, I don't want listeners to think, Wow, what a cheapskate, what a parsimonious fellow or just a plain simple, old fashioned meanie, some sort of <laughs> tight fisted character. Not at all. It's just that although actually in leadership elections party leadership elections, it was not unknown for candidates to throw lunches, more often drinks parties, I would say, but they may have taken people to lunch or dinner. In the speakership election, there was such a huge number of people to contact in a relatively circumscribed timetable of a month that... Frankly, I didn't get into taking people to lunch or dinner, but I would often meet people for a cup of coffee and a chat, either in their office or in mine or in Portcullis House, where my own parliamentary office was located.
1: Coffee again being significant.
0: Coffee being I significant. Know,
1: I didn't know coffee was so significant.
0: Coffee was significant. This is what
1: I need to know. In Quite my, a lot thereof was consumed. He me
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't want coffee to be a bar. <laughs> we we can't be coffeeist. No. I mean, it's perfectly possible for somebody who prefers tea to stand for speaker, and it's perfectly possible for somebody to stand for speaker resolutely committed to consuming neither coffee nor tea.
1: And and nothing
0: stronger, in Peter Mandelson's words, than hot water.
1: That that is possible. You can lure people in just with the strength of your personality. It doesn't have to be the strength of your coffee. I mean, this is quite an ancient job you took on. Do you know who the first chap in the job was and when?
0: The earliest year for which a presiding officer has been identified is 1258, when Peter de Montfort presided over the sitting of Parliament. That was held in Oxford. I'm not myself by any means convinced that he qualifies as the first speaker of the House of Commons. The continuous history of the Office of Speaker is thought instead to date from 1376 when Sir Peter de la Mare spoke for the Commons in what was called the Good Parliament. And then just to complicate matters, you can't get a simple answer to a simple question, I'm afraid. You'll be very disappointed if you think you can. It's often said that I'm the shortest man ever to be Speaker of the House of Commons. This is quite wrong. There's nothing wrong with being short. We short people on the whole are environmentally friendly in the sense that we don't take up a lot of space. But it's quite wrong when some of these more downmarket, low-musical, fifth-rate scribblers in the tabloids say Oberko's oh, the shortest man ever to be Speaker. Sir John Bussey, Speaker of the UK House of Commons. From 1394 to 1398, Sir John Wenlock, Speaker from 1455 to 1456, and Sir Thomas Tresham, Speaker in 1459, are all believed to have been shorter than I am. Although I do have to admit that this was true only after all three of them had been beheaded. (laughs) Indeed, no fewer than seven of my predecessors met their end on the executioner's block. One was killed in battle and a further poor unfortunate soul was brutally murdered. So you will understand that this did enable me to view the woes and challenges which afflicted and confronted the Speaker of the House with an appropriate sense of historical perspective. That is Mm -hmm. to say, whatever else happened to me, I knew that I wasn't likely to lose my head.
1: Speaking of sometimes the job being in danger, uh, was there a coup to try and get you out at one point?
0: In March 2015, instead of being re-elected at the start of a new parliament by a simple collection of the voices, that is to say the father of the House saying proposition is that Mr John Burko do serve of this House as Speaker. As many of that opinion say aye, of the contrary no, and it being determined on the basis of which was the louder cry, it should perhaps be done by secret ballot. And this idea was, as I say, put to the procedure committee and they reflected on it. And the procedure committee decided that they didn't favour a secret ballot at the start of a Parliament, and the matter just sat there for quite some time. And then just before the end of the 2010-15 to 15 Parliament, the leader of the House, William Hague, decided that he thought that this proposition be allowed to be put to the House, with a view to it being implemented at the start of the 2015 Parliament, a few weeks thereafter. And so he came to see me on the penultimate day of Parliament sitting before we broke up for the 2015 election, he asked in the morning for a meeting with me, came to see me at half past five in the afternoon, and he came to tell me that he had tabled a motion that would go on the order paper for the next day which would contain the proposition that the Speaker should thereafter be re-elected at the start of a Parliament by secret ballot if there was so much as one dissenting voice. And I said to him that I felt abject contempt for the way in which he was behaving, coming to me on the penultimate day and springing this on me. He very disingenuously said to me that it would be a free vote. But in fact, I quickly discovered that the government was whipping people to vote in favour of a secret ballot. And he said, it will be a free vote. It is not a party matter, and it will be a matter for the judgment of the House. But, yes, it was a matter for the judgment of the House, but the fact is, despite his denials, disavowals and deceptions, the government was trying to change the rules in order to stuff me.
1: I read that he was doing the bidding of David Cameron and actually didn't really want to do it, and that's why he kind of tipped you off, that otherwise it would have been done without your knowledge. Is that true?
0: I think that's a very charitable interpretation. I can well believe that it was done at the instigation of others. My sense is that David Cameron was certainly behind it. He will certainly have known about it. Uh, William tipped me off because it would have been a quite extraordinary discourtesy not even to tell me that the motion was going to be tabled. So that I just regarded as a box ticking courtesy. On his part. But he didn't tip me off in the sense that he gave me any opportunity to do anything about it. The government was tabling the motion, and I certainly couldn't prevent that happening. So he wasn't seeking to give me any advantage by telling me. I think he probably just wanted to protect himself from the charge of complete discourtesy, mm-hmm. which would have been levelled at him if he hadn't told me at all. The House debated the matter the following day. Very large numbers of members had gone off to start campaigning in the general election, but considerable numbers of members came back and the government lost the vote. And it has to be said that it was a very sad last day for William Hague in the House of Commons. He was standing down at the general election and he subsequently went to the House of Lords. It was, frankly, a pitiful way for him to conclude his parliamentary career. I felt not so much embarrassed by William, I felt embarrassed for him.
1: He certainly wasn't sent a complimentary cappuccino that day. He was not. <laughs> and he did
0: not receive a Christmas card from me. I can't recall whether I received one from him, but I've always felt about William that I would buy him at my valuation, sell him at his and realise a healthy profit in the process.
1: So, I've got some questions here from Twitter.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Did you from, genuinely conduct a Twitter poll?
1: Yes, there's a genuine Twitter poll out there. At the Dan Ford asks, "Is the chair comfy, John?" Very great. You don't uh, want to get
0: up. <laughs> and, I sat in it once, Dan Ford, for 14 hours. I may tell you.
1: And now I've heard about this, and you were the longest ever not to go to the loo.
0: Indeed, I you came set to a be record. dubbed Golden
1: Bladder. Nice, nice. Um, You really
0: wanted to know that, didn't you, Deborah?
1: Uh, I mean, at Adam Unwin asks, do you receive training before taking on the role? That's a good question. Is there a sort of training academy, like a Top Gun academy? You're the the best of the best, we'll make you better.
0: There isn't a training academy, but you can learn the skills of chairing by sitting on the speaker's panel of chairs who chair bill committees and delegated legislation committees in committee rooms upstairs on the committee corridor. And I did do that from July 2005 until I stood for speaker in June 2009. So, so the short your answer homework. is that I did do my homework. And although I was chairing much smaller groups of people, I was effectively playing the role of the speaker in a bill committee, in that I was the impartial umpire or referee of the proceedings. So the I became more Does the former speaker take you out for a lunch procedure?
1: and tell you, give you, show you the ropes, take, t- give you some classes in how to say order?
0: No, no. Disappointing. <laughs> the <laughs> former speaker had retired, not just as speaker but as a member of parliament the day before I was elected.
1: But just find your way. You just
0: have to hack it.
1: I mean, you know. This is, this, is, this is the harsh truth of politics. Indeed. At A underscore Linsell asks, what can the Speaker do or not do about MPs who mislead the House?
0: The Speaker has to be very careful about that. I would rather put it the other way round and say that a member is not allowed. Some people think that this is arcane and wrong but a member is not allowed to accuse another member of misleading the House unless he or she includes the word inadvertently. Because if a member accuses another member of misleading the House and there is no reference to it being an inadvertent misleading, the accusation is effectively a charge of dishonesty and one member is not allowed to impugn the honour or integrity of another member.
1: Even if it's Boris Johnson?
0: Even if it's Boris Johnson.
1: Who, which is on record, lies the whole time and doesn't apologise.
0: Yes, but the answer to that is, again, it's still supposed to be done if somebody is to accuse him of misleading the House, of dishonesty. It is supposed to be done on a motion that is in front of the House. And there was one occasion when a Labour member, Chris Bryant, accused a government minister of lying. And Conservative members were absolutely outraged that I didn't rule him out of order. The reason why I didn't rule him out of order, Deborah, is is that the whole subject matter of the debate was the conduct of the Secretary of State in relation to whom the motion had been tabled. So Chris Bryant was speaking to the motion in saying what he did. And therefore, that was the one circumstance, the one scenario, if you will, in which it was legitimate to accuse another member of dishonesty. Mm. Whether it was tasteful or not is another matter, but it was not illegitimate.
1: So if you knew... But on three
0: occasions over 10 years, I asked people to leave the chamber for the rest of the day because they'd accused another member of dishonesty.
1: If you knew someone was being dishonest and they were accused of dishonesty, would you still have to say you have to say that's inadvertent even though you thought it wasn't inadvertent? It was quite vertent.
0: I would be very loath from the chair and i don't think i did so to accuse a member of speaking dishonestly in the house you'd have to be absolutely certain that that was the case and it isn't really for the speaker to rule on whether a member is being honest or not. Each member is responsible for the veracity of what he or she says to the chamber. So if there is a widespread feeling that a member has misled the House, then the House can take the matter into its own hands. I know that most recently there has been a grave concern that the Prime Minister and the truth are nodding acquaintances only in a leap year. And that will play out over a period
1: if, it comes out that if members said the really wrong feel thing. very
0: strongly that he's misleading the House, they will find a way of registering that view, even if it isn't successfully registered, even if there isn't a successful vote. They will be able, on a motion, to make that point if and when they wish.
1: Just to, ask, to speak to A. Linsell's question, if somebody has said something and then it turns out what they said was incorrect, do you ask them... Or can they say, actually, last week I said this, can I correct it, please?
0: Yes. In some cases, I would ask a member to come and correct the record, and in other cases, a member would ask me. I remember when a minister in the Conservative government, a Secretary of State, inadvertently gave a wrong and misleading answer to the House. That minister approached me and said, Mr Speaker, I did err... In my answer the other day, can I, I think it was even the previous day, she said, can I come to the House and correct the record on a point of order? And I said, yes, absolutely, you can. And indeed, you should. And she did.
1: Has Boris Johnson ever asked to do that? No. Okay, And no further questions. So finally, John, where would you put the speaker in terms of influence in British politics? Where does the speaker sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> nowhere near to absolute power. I do not think the Speaker is basically irrelevant. I think that the Speaker can have quite a lot to do with the culture of the House, the timbre of debate, the extent to which members are able properly to scrutinise the governments. So I think the Speaker is quite a significant figure in that respect. But is there anything near to absolute power? No, nor should there be. The... Government, which is drawn from the elected parliament, you know, has the most power. So where would I put the speaker? I suppose I'd put the speaker somewhere in the middle. You know, complete irrelevance? Absolutely not. And that would just be pejorative abuse if somebody said whoever the speaker is. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. That's just not true. The speaker can make and does make and has frequently made a very considerable difference. But is the speaker, you know, an imperious or omnipotent figure? No, no the Speaker is not. I would say the the Speaker is there to facilitate the will of the House of Commons.
1: So a five out of ten.
0: A five out of ten perhaps.
1: Excellent. Did you enjoy your time as Speaker?
0: I loved it. I didn't want to be Speaker simply so that I could say to my children or God willing one day my grandchildren, I served as Speaker. I said when I stood for office, not everybody will accept this or believe this or think that it was borne out by events because I'm quite a strong personality but I said when I stood for office that I didn't want to be someone I wanted to do something I wanted through my own initiatives and in collaboration with working on behalf of colleagues in the house to deliver a reform agenda reform agenda that was about revitalizing the legislature about modernizing the parliamentary estate And I had ups and downs. I had successes and failures. I made friends and I incurred enemies. And to err is human, so I'm perfectly ready to acknowledge that I made mistakes. But Deborah, I often said to school and university audiences that I had no plans to die tomorrow, but that if I died tomorrow, I'd die happy, feeling I'd been extremely lucky.
1: You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White.
0: And me, John Burko.
1: Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland and the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinsky. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com.